Hello. Hello. Okay, let's go into Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong show. <laughs> In the weird things inside the gold mine, your guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Godzilla, oh no, uh, tonight, <laughs> Elliot Gould on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Things Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the fifth episode now, the eighth season of Weird Seasons of the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss problems in corporate bathrooms, uh, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, <laughs> the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tonight, notable for playing Debussy if likable everyman types, the former Elliot Goldstein was something of a unique type who could pull off comedy and serious melodrama equally believably. Born and raised in the heavily Italian immigrant neighborhood of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, he spent hey. five years working in theater before being given his first film role. Hey, bada bing, bada bong, over here, over there. Uh, interestingly, it took another five years before his defining turn in 60s sexual revolution dramedy Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which followed by his part in yet another generation touchpoint, MASH, led to a memorable run of quirky films throughout the 70s that saw him becoming something of an ersatz sex symbol alongside arguably similar, if lesser, types like Richard Benjamin and Alan Alda. With a propensity towards darker, more loaded, and nihilistic comedies, offset by cheery, lighthearted takes on heavier genres like war, crime, and noir, Gould straddled a middle ground shared by very few actors of his day, the sort who could and did darken a Disney film, but on the flip side, brighten up the grimace of scenarios. Staying active in more recent years with recurrent parts in much-beloved 80s drama ER, 90s yuppie lodestone Friends, and the Ocean's Eleven series, and surviving not only a brief marriage to Babs Streisand, but two consecutive marriages to the same woman, join us as we talk perhaps the unlikeliest of sex symbols and most nihilistic, yet amusing of every man, the inimitable Elliot Gould, only here on Weird Seeds. So, I am Doc Savage, with these Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness. Hello, Lewis. Hello, thank you for... Actually, uh, he was married to Babs for ten years. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's the thing. Actually, about Elliot, uh, I, I'm glad you name-checked uh, Richard Benjamin, who I liked. Oh, yeah. And Alan Alda, who, who you know, we, we all liked up to... You know, up to a point. <laughs> up to a point, yeah, yeah. No, not, not like we dislike Alan as a man. It's just like, yeah, you know, we, we enjoyed a lot of his things. Elliot, however, which is probably one of the reasons why we're doing this show, Elliot falls into this weird kind of spectrum. A, a friend of Donald Sutherland and also a counterculture guy, mm-hmm. you know, Elliot Gould, I have to say, is, is, is like one of, you know, we have Gene Wilder. Oh, I, we got to throw Gene Wilder out there, another Jewish statesman uh, of the theater and film. But Elliot has more veritas. He's, mm-hmm. he's, got, he's got it going because he did equally, I wouldn't say so much comedy, but maybe black comedy, yeah. melodrama. And, you know, I've seen him do work, but he was a really creepy fuck or even... 
not so much villainous, but he could play it hard. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, even when you kind of all, or hopefully we're going to cover this film, when you kind of almost gave up on Elliot mid-period, because he, he went to a later period as well, but when you almost gave up hope that, you know, he, he was doing like the shtick kind of movies, he does something like The Silent Partner. Oh, yes. It's really... Really yeah. good movie. Damn good movie. And then he did this weird canon picture. I, I don't know if you saw it. called Over the Brooklyn Bridge, where uh, I think Menachem Golden directed that, <laughs> where Carol Kane, of all people, is in it as like this dom. He's like this nice Jewish nebbish guy who wants to fall in love with the nice girl. You know, there's like Jewish guys trying to go on online dating nowadays, I guess. <laughs> but it was like the weird thing, like, so Carol Kane became a sex pot in this film. You know, thanks, Elliot. <laughs> um, but I, I always liked him. He's really good. He's also, uh, I'm going to hand it back to you, but I, I just wanted to say, I don't think Elliot Gould was never given enough credit for no. actually the range he's capable of, and he does display in quite a number of different films. That's exactly it. When I mentioned that I wanted to do an Elliot Gould show, my wife was like, really? Why? But you don't get it, because he's not a comedian like some of these other people, like even Gene Wilder you mentioned. Okay, yeah, mm. he's got something there underneath, but it's yes. more like this disturbed, neurotic sort of thing that you find with, to some extent, Woody Allen, but definitely with Robin Williams, people like that. Whereas Gould, that's not the case. Gould was very much, and you mentioned it, you hit the nail on the head with that, a counterculture icon. He came very much from that era and making those, having those stances and being that sort of uh, appealing to that crowd. And yet you got the comedy thing, and then you've got some really serious drama that sometimes you'll flip back and forth, throw a little bit of lightheartedness into the dark, or vice versa. And it's not, there really aren't too many people like that. I mean, you do see it once in a while, but not to the same extent, not regularly like this, not with so many notable successes like this. So he was definitely worth hitting up, especially when we were doing similar people, like you mentioned Sutherland, we had a show on him recently. And of course, you know, all the ones we were doing, Michael Caine. I mean, there's people that we had covered recently, and I was like, well, why not only a cool? What the hell? He gets popular. Up yeah. in my discussions here, so let's do it. So after he had done, he was in some theatrical and so forth. He did a couple of small bit parts in a few Hollywood films. Uh, he was in something called Once Upon a Mattress, which is a TV movie. Quick, let's get married. He just had a bit part. And these are very small parts. The night they raided Minsky's, he was actually Minsky, the guy that had the burlesque show. So the first thing that you're really gonna know him for, and that everybody, it, it was like he came right out of the gate and people knew who he was. Bam, just like that, was Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And they used to play this thing. Anybody that was around through the 80s and 90s, they'd play this thing every freaking day, practically, on one of those Turner Networks. And I used to watch it with bafflement. I'm like, do I like this film? Do I hate this film? It sort of seems like, oh, look, you know, if, if you're younger and you're into the whole free love thing and I'm kind of with the hippie movement, I'm cool with this, I'm listening to the airplane, big on Woodstock, the whole deal. I'm still young and idealistic. And I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm like, yeah, but the ending, it's so dark it's actually going back to saying something that turns out to be true but it's not a counterculture film the way you think it's a telling and bizarrely defining film that captures the shift from the hippie movement of the mid to late 60s and its shift to the ridiculously self-centered me generation nonsense of the 70s and interestingly just how much of the worst aspects of this have become the bedrock for the oversensitive inanity that's become such a problem nowadays in a role clearly intended for peter fonda but which he'd surely rejected for its ultimately bourgeois conclusion i spy's robert culp lends too much extra gruffness to his part as half of a hippie couple working their way into their inner feelings and expressing the sexual revolution that promised open and group 
group marriages and guilt-free zipless fucks, as Erica Young put it, but ultimately just resulted in a rash of acrimonious splits and bitter divorces, even among longtime couples throughout the subsequent decade. All this pursuit of Reiki and Oregon begins with a touchy-feely encounter group weekend. This was such a huge thing back then. Even the Catholic mm. Church created their own rather sexist variant, Marriage Encounter, where naked hippie chicks embrace the sun and guys head off into the woods like that tie-dyed teacher in Beavis and Butthead who sang Men Have Feelings Too before getting mauled by a bear. <laughs> Doug, <laughs> to cajole, to primal scream with each other. This was a huge, huge thing. And like I say, even my folks did this Marriage Encounter knockoff. Obviously, they weren't running around naked there. At least I don't think so. But, you know, it's still kind of the same idea. Like, ooh, let's get in touch with our feelings with strangers. I understand you, man. You need a hug. <laughs> Eventually, everyone breaks off into mixed groups and shares their feelings about their deepest secrets and relationship malfunctions before returning to the wide world to bear the message of psychological introspection and sexual libertinage, minus the kink and spice normally associated with transgression and pushing boundaries, a rather straight-laced bourgeois variant if you will, albeit with any bonds of trust or faithfulness between partners. Culp and the still-stunning Natalie Wood, this was a full decade before her rather matronly turn in media, remember, bring their touchy-feely pushiness to use as a weapon against their more uptight pals Elliot Gould and his frigid wife Diane Cannon, who get introduced to Pot and, in Gould's case, more or less badgered into playing the field. When Cannon finds out, she demands all this nonsense get taken to its logical conclusion with a four-way between the two couples. But don't get your hopes up here. This is ultimately a rather conservative, if realistic film, so effectively, nothing happens and everyone sort of walks away sheepishly. Yeah, no surprise Fonda was substituted with the far less color culture culp here, and while Gould did sort of come off as an icon of the era, remember that he was in his very serious and even orthodox about his Jewish identity as well, so it's not really this sort of free-spirited counterculture type you expect. That's why he's complicated. Again, a surprisingly conservative film masquerading as a celebration of hippiedom and the free love movement of its day. Oh, and just for shits and giggles, Celeste Yarnell and a young Leaf Garrett appear along the way, not that you really noticed them. Well, this was, uh, it's still a very of its time film you know this is uh i am woman came out and i am curious yellow blue all these <laughs> yellow blue and y'all the, the films from sweden blue movie the deuce and maka j films uh, mysteries of the orgasm or organism whatever it was called the joe sano the early joe sano films so this was a thing then you know and softcore became hardcore and so this i wouldn't say wrote on the wagon but this was like i think paul mazerski the director felt comfortable enough to like let's do this you know and so uh, interesting cast because you know robert Culp, diane can and natalie wood who still look yeah okay elliot gould who's like pretty much just first major co-starring role and yeah it touches on things that is still playing it safe but really trying not to and yeah. did well enough for Elliot Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, New York Film Critics Award. He actually nominated for Best Support. You know the guy was British Film Awards. I mean for Best Actor, all nominations. But really interesting thing going on there. Out of the gate as a movie, yeah, I think the latter portion of it and its denouement, the ending, kind of leaves enough of a very sour <laughs> taste. But then again, we're talking 1969, which is all a weird year in history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a Hollywood film, I'm going to give a credit for this, for a Hollywood film, major studio too. It pulled off a lot of things that a lot of other majors, you know, we're still getting fucking Doris Day Rock, Rock Hudson movies in 1969. Although the last few, we're still getting Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda movies in 1969. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think you know, with six, you get egg rolls, something like that. <laughs> so for a studio to come out with this kind of movie, and I still, you might even still find the trailers on, on YouTube or maybe uh, compilations. Y'all, they, they tried to really pull this off. It's a very transgressive film. Mm-hmm. Elliot does really well in this, and, and he kind of stamped his thing down for this picture. Yeah. Likeable, that's another thing. You know, he's going by the script. He was going by the director. Another New York Jewish guy, Mazursky. But very interesting film, I would say. Yeah, that's actually, you kind of nailed it there because that's the problem. It's like you sort of see where they're going with this stuff. You're like, okay, this is kind of pushing boundaries that weren't really hit on at the time that was going on in the real world that everybody was into. And it wasn't just like, oh, look, those hippies down in San Francisco or wherever the hell. It was like your next-door neighbor and your mother and her pals were like all talking about sex and free love and wife-swapping and whatever the hell else. And yet, it's even though it's playing in that arena, it's got this sort of safe bourgeois ending, which, yes, it came true. As the 70s proved out, eventually all this stuff didn't have a payback, if you will. You know, orgone was not a real substance, and, uh, you know, the sex was not going to save the world any more than any of the other things that they thought back in the late 60s. But I don't like how it felt. You know, if they were going to say that, then you would think it would be coming from a much more conservative cast and more stringent, almost like uh, the original Invasion USA, the one from the 50s, like that kind of thing, where they're going to, you know, oh, let's let's pretend, like, ballyhoo kind of thing. Well, let's pretend we're going to go sex madness, something like that. Uh, Marijuana, the weed with the devil's root. Let's show all these, you know, drug addicts and hippies, whatever the hell, running around naked and having fun, and then they're going to get their payback. Ah, ha, ha, see, we were right all along. It didn't come off like that, but that's where it wound up going. And it's, I can never figure out, it's like, do I like this film? Do I hate this film? It, it varies by the viewing, almost. Yeah, it's a tricky one. So, um, anyway, like you said, it was a big thing for him. It was a big thing for a lot of these people. And he immediately parlayed this into another uh, up-and-coming counterculture thing, which is MASH. We addressed this in our in our Sutherland oh, show. Yeah. And here he is actually Trapper John, who later got a show uh, as Pernell Roberts with that Trapper John MD after the MASH TV show. But we're talking about the movie, of course. And it's a true cultural touchpoint for the Vietnam era. This canny two fingers up to the establishment was reset in the politically safer Korean War, while clearly carrying the anti-establishment values of its day to extremes. Gould is Trapper John MD, but as with Sutherland's decidedly more rebellious Hawkeye Pierce, there's precious little relation to the far more straight-list TV character most will remember. These guys are something else, pulling off blackmail, dirty tricks, procurement, and what these days would be termed sexual harassment in due course, just to do their jobs and stick to the Hippocratic Oath and keep their sanity in the insane conditions. And of course, this is also what makes them anti-heroes of their day. It's still a jarringly rough watch, given just how strange and uptight society's become since this film was released. You know, culture has changed a lot, and I don't necessarily mean for the better by that. But watching it nowadays, you're like, whoa, what the hell? If these guys were heroes, what's going on here? <laughs> So, at this point in history, it's like, wow, what a strange fucking film. And it's so different from the TV show. It's so much not safe, if you will. Oh, this is Robert Altman. He he had a run for a good couple of years for a while there. This is a great fucking Robert Altman movie. Great performances from, from minor character actors to the major actors. Even fucking Fred Williamson in his first major film role. As a walk-on as a football player, of course. Uh... This is Ace, but yes, it's very dark. My remembrance of this film is that it felt like the cast was high. <laughs> yes. You know, it felt like Sutherland and Gould were high, and Gould was very edgy in this picture. Mm-hmm. His his role had to be. You know, you're in war, 
uh, both these guys, well, Sutherland was actually more mellowish, sort of like the pot smoking guy, and Gould came off as like the the coke guy, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not putting any insinuations in this at all. I think that's the way they decided to work at their characters. And because Gould was always like dealing with blood and sewing up people and like throwing them back out. If you can't throw them back out, send them back home and dealing with, you know, stuff back home. And the whole satire and the psychedelic thing that is war, which again, for a picture that's, Gosh, what nineteen seventy? It's it's amazing that it's still fresh, still holds up, and his greatness, and, and you know what a great supporting cast, and it's a great Robert Altman film. A lot of people, I do want to say about Altman, a lot of people kind of poo-poo him later on. He, you know, later on in his career, he made some weird fucker movies and mm-hmm. some very bizarre pictures. Quintet, Paul Newman, um, Lee Bowman. You know, post-apocalyptic thing. What? And Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for Robin Williamson as Popeye the Sailor. I'll still sit through Popeye over Nashville. I'll say that. <laughs> I actually like Nashville, but that's another story. Uh, Elliot has a cameo in that, by the way. But, yeah, you know, between the both of us, I mean, MASH is like a one-of-a-kind movie, and it's very different from the series that followed. Mm-hmm. You know, to say the least. <laughs> but they, the early, the earlier years of MASH, the television series, tried to, in a way, follow that kind of uh, template a little bit until they got lost in something else. But MASH, great film. Elliot Grove was really good in it. So next up, he does a couple of things that are still kind of odd. I think he's going to do something called Getting Straight. I don't think I've seen this one. I, I do remember one that was much later with, uh, I think it was called Straight Time or something with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Let's Teresa see. Russell. And it's the same idea. It's basically an ex-con getting out and finding that there's really no place for him. You know, he, he can't get anywhere because of his record, even though it's something minor. But again, I've not seen this particular film. Well, actually, Getting Straight actually was a Richard Rush movie. The guy didn't make too many movies. He did The Stuntman. He was in TV for years before he did feature films and they kind of like, Blues wad, but Elliot actually in this film is a nonconformist grad student who has Candace Bergman. Talk about Mrs. Freeze, <laughs> his girlfriend, and it's it's just it's just another these weird counterculture movies. Again, it's in that kind of Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice old. Did you did you want to do a little murders? Did yes, definitely. That? Well, there's actually two more in between that. Again, I have not seen something called Move, which I believe was the stage play, like an off-off Broadway job. It was, and that was like the film version of that. Again, but Durkin, Elliot's doing these very freaky, like, things that fit into this thing here. Paul Apprentice, who actually wound up being married to Richard Benjamin later on in yes. life, mm-hmm. is in this thing where, you know, Elliot plays a would-be New York playwright who's making his living as a porn writer. What a life. <laughs> uh, walking dogs, you know, for a living. Uh, you know, it's like a New York movie. These are the kind of movies, though, that that Woody Allen next because this was a real New York movie to me. It's not a great film, folks. I'm not saying run out and try to find Move, directed by Stuart Rosenberg. It's got a lot of great people in here. Uh, Joe Silver, you would recognize the faces of, of the character. Just Elliot's fine in this, but I mentioned Woody Allen because Woody Allen decides to, to do f- the rest of his filming career post Take the Money and Run about neurosis. Yeah. Oh, great. Yo, blah, 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 blah. He's still making these fucking movies. <laughs> 50 years on. But I like this 
because it was more of a New York film. And it was like, yeah, everybody's a would-be we, we say we're be, everybody wants to attain to be this or that. But the truth of life is you have to do this to get to there. The guy's walking dogs, writing porn, but he wants to be a playwright. And and, and I actually like this film. Elliot is, does fine work in it. <laughs> it is what it is in a way. Yeah, New York Cinema is a strange lot. I mean, in some ways, even though it was really Pennsylvania, the first Romero film was sort of like that. I'll take Vanilla. And, uh, and even Season of the Witch to a lesser extent. And also something like sidelong dances or a pigeon kicker. I mean, weird things like that. That's kind of all in the same genre, same bucket of box of frogs, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. So anyway, here's another one. I love my wife. This is all the same year. He's like bound them out one after the other. So 1971, he does another stage play off Broadway, I believe, and it's actually one that he was involved with originally theatrically, which is Little Murders. Now, lest you think modern societal woes began with people like W. and Trump, here's a reminder of just how dark things were all the way back at the dawn of the 70s, courtesy of a Village Voice cartoon gag writer and the in-laws Alan Arkin. Apparently Jean-Luc Godard was supposed to direct, but the set was so contentious that he walked. So, and that should say something, Godard thought it was too contentious and he walked. The real star of the film is the mise-en-scene. It's a particularly scuzzy New York, where home invasions that leave the place a ransacked mess with graffiti on the walls and random heavy breather phone calls are commonplace. And a guy covered in blood can ride the subway without anyone giving a second glance. Gould is a decidedly passive protagonist, an almost autistically disinvolved fellow who gets rescued from a street B-town by a rather Liza Minnelli-esque pushy female who decides she's in love with the schlub and winds up pushing him into marrying her. His mashed spy's partner Donald Sutherland cameos as a trippy priest here, and eventually into manning up and engaging her by fighting back against her dom-level demands. Of course, when he finally does so, she gets shot in the head Kennedy-style just out of the blue, which leaves a depressed but newly testosterone-driven Gould to join forces with her crazy father, Vincent Gordinia, who's been going out there the entire film calling everybody a pansy and such like, in a dispassionate killing spree, blowing random passerby away in the streets. Absurdist nihilism and celluloid, this is so dark, has to be pretty damn funny, at least in premise. You can almost see John Waters' eyes lighting up in the script for Serial Mom starting to come together as he watched this. Sadly, the execution is too borsty and 70s bleak to deliver all the laughs you'd expect. It's grunge depressing dark, not gothic embrace the dark, and that's the problem in a nutshell. Oh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna make a detour here. There's L.A. porn and there's New York porn. And and for anybody that's like into that golden age stuff, especially, that's what I'm speaking of right now. The New York stuff was always dark. And why was that? Because it was a mirror image of New York back in that time period. Little Murders, based on the stage play, Jules Pfeiffer, who I still, you know, until like the, he stopped writing for the Village Voice of Past, I still enjoyed his really weird cartoon, cartoonish. Uh, his his columns and then you know i would like to read his his not illustrated stuff his writings and then alan ark alan arkin who a lot of people don't give enough credit to you know they now they just find him as a funny older jewish guy alan arkin was a really interesting dark character actor he's a actor period and and a lot of people Maybe don't know. Maybe because all they know is Alan Arkin, the senior age doctor. He's not he was, as good as Gould, but I was thinking of him earlier when I was talking about what Gould is accomplishing here. Yeah. Very similar type, just not as good. Yeah. Alan, yeah, Alan Arkin is a different guy. He's a different he's, – he's from a different field. He can be more acerbic, though. He can be more acidic. Yep. And Alan Arkin is the kind of guy who would be like, well, if you don't like it, fuck you. Yeah, is that the kind of he's thing? He's off-putting. 
Right, he's off-putting. Where Elliot would be like, well, if you don't like it, that's that's really bad, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Yo, know, that kind of – Elliot would do the middle ground. Anyway, this movie, Little Murders, is really – yeah, you kind of – yeah, I, I, it's kind of weird. It's kind of dark. Why is it on DVD? It used to be a uh, video on demand from uh, Fox. It'd be interesting. A lot of these people are still around. They could do a, a very interesting commentary. It actually was at least on DVD, but I think it was kind of bare bones. It's kind of bare bones, and I think they might have removed it and maybe did. Because Fox and Warner, MGM, they they all were doing these video on demands, which means you had to go to their websites and search around. Like, you know, you can get it for like 10 bucks or so. Very strange movie. It was in Broadway, 67. It was in London, 67. Off-Broadway, 69, where I think Elliot actually appeared in the Off-Broadway before he went to Hollywood. Speaking of Woody Allen, Gordon Willis was the DP on this. That's not double penetration. He was the <laughs> cinematography cinematographer, and he worked with Woody Allen on a lot of his films. So, you know, Alan Arkin's first feature film, you got, like, a really great cast. Vincent Gardenia, later on to go to Italy and become your token Italian-American guy in <laughs> Police Chietesky. Doris Roberts is in this thing, a familiar face from TV later on in the 70s. Strange movie, a, a dark film. Yeah, so uh, he actually kind of, I hate say makes a misstep, but career-wise, he gets involved with internet. You know how uh, Sutherland got involved with Fellini there for that really bizarre right. Casanova film? Well, I know where you're going. Yeah. He went with Ingemar Bergman for a film that, strangely, considering how basically every film that Ingemar Bergman ever touched is out on DVD or blue somewhere, is not, which is called The Touch. And I believe it was his first English-language film. And actually, uh, Gold was the star of this thing. But, you know, uh, you can't even see the damn thing to judge it. And after that, it was you know it didn't do too well. And I hate to say he was blacklisted, but there was nothing going on. for You saw he did like four films in 1970. He does nothing else in 71 and nothing in 72. I think that he did get involved, I mean, now even a little bit later, in production, because I know he was involved with, speaking of Woody Allen, producing everything you want to know about sex. I think the first touches of him trying to do other things besides acting on screen might have been around this era, because there was nothing else going on. He just couldn't make it, couldn't get signed on, I guess. Want to go to The Long Goodbye? The Long Goodbye. This was a big one for him, I mean, in a lot of ways. Uh, so The Long Goodbye, it was actually one of Gould's most important pictures, and the only Robert Altman picture that I really liked. I mean, not just like, okay, well, it's passable. I mean, I like this movie. Here he delivers a more down-on-his-luck than usual Philip Marlowe as a poor schlub who lives with and more or less for his cat. Of course, the fact that he can't get the proper brand of cat food sets up a parallel to the main story right from the opening scenes. He helps a friend with a ride to Tijuana, and then refusing to rat him out to the cops, things start to get darker and far more convoluted from here on out. Gould Schlubby Marlowe is not only sardonic, but sarcastic, without falling into the downbeat melodramatics of his 50s noir forebears. You know, you're a born loser. Yeah, I even lost my cat. Manipulated, roughed up, and screwed over by nearly everybody in the cast, he nevertheless refuses to give in to despair or cynicism, coming off more as a jovial survivor than depressive victim even in the darkest of times, which makes him a uniquely likable, even identifiable neo-noir hero, both quite reminiscent of and decidedly diametrical to what you'd expect from a noir lead, even in terms of Chandler. Again, it's another film that I absolutely love, and one which, alongside busting, spies, silent partner, escape to Athena, and his brief turn to mean Johnny Barrows, kind of encapsulates the unique charm of Elliot 
Gould is his finest. So, bottom line, if you don't like the man in those films I just mentioned, this isn't the show for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is this is a terrific Ellie Gould performance. Good Robert Altman film. Uh, is he Philip Marlowe? That's well, questionable. Yes, questionable, but he's, he's, you know, the 70s were such a time, you know, of their place, and, and definitely a thing that was going on, the countercultural thing was still happening. This movie's peopled by cast and people by the strangest fucking <laughs> you know okay where was the party on this one we had sterling hayden who was like your he-man type star good looking guy westerns and the such and then after working with kubrick he certainly had a change of career and possibly of change of mind <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Sterling Hayden's in this, and, and character, for sure. Nina Van Palen. We all know who she is, right? Starfucker to the stars. And um, <laughs> uh, she was all over the place. Royalty in Europe. Nina was just involved with Clifford Irving. She was involved with Howard Hughes, Keith Richards. She was possibly... And this time period she was like in films she wasn't classically beautiful and she wasn't even hot like marion faithful in her prime she was just kind of like this euro chick who wasn't real thin but it wasn't chubby who had a look and she kind of parlayed that into well they cast her into a number of films and so nina van palance in this and a couple other very familiar faces vilma zygmunt was the cinematographer on this. I mean, great-looking film. Arnold Schwarzenegger's in a damn thing as a cameo. In a cameo. And it's just... But this is the thing I wanted to get at before going away from this film, is that with this movie, Elliot starts to starts to get this nihilistic persona imbued into his core. Mm -hmm. So films for a while after this starts to be... His, his portrayal starts to become more less dynamic, and more bleaker, more mm -hmm. I'm tired, and I have a particular look at the world, and you're looking at me looking at the world through this tired, sarcastic view. Not unlikable, but almost too realistic for some of us. And uh, you mentioned about Nina. One parallel that people might recognize that's a little bit more recent, maybe by about eight years, ten years, is Maggie Trudeau. Same idea. Oh, yeah, Maggie Trudeau. You remember? She was fucking the stone. She was the... <laughs> they, they actually wrote a song about her. Having heroin with the president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was a different time. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So anyway, next up, 1974, he does Busting. Now, even before doing the final research on this one, I'd always gotten the impression this film was where they got the idea for Starsky and Hutch. I mean, the parallels are pretty damn obvious. A pair of low-rent, counterculture-style vice cops who keep a good sense of humor and ironic detachment in a quiver of weapons as they deal with the more subtle dregs of society. Not the big guns like terrorists, serial killers, home invasions, bank robbers, but the more bubble into the surface stuff like porn shops, massage parlors, prostitution, and those who profit off and supply drugs and funding to the same. Interestingly, Antonio Fargus, who become a staple character of the aforementioned Starsky and Hutch, gives a whole new meaning to the name Huggy Bear as a vicious drag queen in an early gay bar sequence. Beretta himself, Robert Blake, is the less likable half of the partnership, while Ilya delivers one of his more amusing takes in more or less the same role Billy Crystal would have saved for the same director a decade on in Running Scared. 
Apparently, Hyams, who also wrote the film, went around and spoke to LAPD vice, pimps, hookers, local judges, and DAs, and incorporated all true-life incidents into the film. He claimed every vignette and incident here was true, kind of like a favorite of mine from the early 90s, which uh, Hollywood Vice Squad, with Frank Gorshin, by the way. You ever want to see Frank Gorshin, like, mm. <laughs> at his best? <laughs> It does start to drag down a bit in the second half, which centers more around their attempt to take down the big mafia don responsible for much of the small action they've been working in the first half. But even so, I love this film. I have since the first time I saw it. And it still holds up just about as well as I remember. Uh, oddly enough, this never got a really good DVD or Blu-ray release. For years, this was available on, as I mentioned earlier, one of those, like... On made on things. yeah on demand things what is that well as i said before if you go to the websites for mgm or fox or warner brothers and you they're not easy to find too you have to search around their on their pages you look for their archive you find all this cool stuff that like is not out and some of it actually has a, some of them do have a few extras and some of the prints are nice and some of the prints are just like somebody made one copy off that neg and that's it, and they're duping off of that. Early Peter Himes film, you know, famous for lots of fun action movies uh, a decade later, but this is, yeah, Vice Squad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's different, it's, but it's got that nihilism in there. Alan Garfield's in this. Alan Garfield, schlubby-looking, uh, nah, nah, probably a nice guy, he just parlayed his career into playing schlubby-looking characters in, in, in darker A-list films and some B-movies. Uh, actually, uh, <laughs> he did some softcore, too, I think. <laughs> uh, but as, as this guy that was so prototypical New York that he couldn't be sleazy yet he was, uh, Antonio Fargus is in a Sid Haig is in this, Michelle Lerner, who had a really long career. Michael Lerner, actually, sorry. Michael Lerner had a really long career, not the composer, <laughs> had a really long career as this, again, New Yorker, Jewish-accented guy, character actor. There, there's a lot of things, which is odd that Robert Blake stands out, even though he's a secondary role, and he's not as good as Elliot in this film, uh, really stood out because of his very uh, non-definable accent. Robert mm -hmm. Blake had a really non-definable accent. And, I, you know, he's funny. I, I kind of liked him in Beretta. Beretta. I, I thought it was enjoyable. And Because uh, I remember Toma, which turned into Beretta. Toma was, uh, what's his name from Canon Nine Tales? No. Jim Francisus? No, no, sorry. Not Canon Nine Tales. Um, the first Archangel. Bird. Bird, Chris Plumage. Uh, what's Tony his name? Musante. Tony Musante did a show called Toma. And then Tony Musante... And the and the sh they did one or two seasons and they turned to Barada, which was really weird. It was like the same show they retooled it for the second season. So Robert Blake coming off, you know, he's probably still in Barada around this time period. He does some weird movies too. I don't know what to make of this picture. I yeah, you know, I've seen it numerous times. It's just like there was a thing going on around this time. There was there was super cops. You remember this? Mm -hmm. I, there was it was Ron Liebman, another Jewish actor. Uh, <laughs> Ron Liebman and uh, maybe Tony Lobianco, and they were playing like cops that were like not good, not bad, but they they served. They had a knife for like scamming the people and freebie and the bean. Mm -hmm. Alan Arkin just mentioned and James Caan. That's that was probably the most successful of this batch, you know, pictures. But busting still not widely recognized. And 
I'm sure now because we reviewed it, but by the time this comes out, like Kino Lauber presents Busting the Ultimate Edition. You know, but you know what's funny about that? I was waiting for you to finish because I was going to say some of these MODs they've started picking them up. Mostly Shout Factory's been going in for their horror ones, mm. and who's going for the rest of them? <laughs> Kino Lauber. And sure enough. There is a Blu-ray of busting out I've had for a good two years now. Oh, I missed that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. all right. They are cherry-picking out of these collections and uh, getting some of these ones that are you know, a little bit more worthwhile than the others out. Not everything, though. So, next up, I believe it's the same year as well, uh, 1974, he does a really strange one. Ostensibly, I guess you could call it sci-fi. I oh, who? Did you see this? Ooh. Yes, oh, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> Scorpion uh, put this one out, and... You know, usually, especially in the old days, Scorpion had fairly impeccable taste. Even if they put out something really strange, and you thought, okay, this is totally my genre, it would still have something weird about it. It would still kind of work. You know, some of these Aussie dramas and some of these British things that kind of were falling between the cracks somehow or other. Anything from, you know, Goodbye Gemini to that weird one with Joan Collins where the guy went into another time and he had two lives. I forget the name of the damn thing. You know, very strange things that, you know, you would not think would work, but are actually Quest for Love. That was a that actually were really decent. So at the time, I was like, okay, you know, Scorpion, I can get it relatively cheap. I grabbed one. So who was one of them? And it's actually one of the very few Scorpion releases that I was like, geez, I don't know about this one. To this day, weird-ass Cold War flop about a scientist working in East Germany who gets in a car crash and gets brought back in a cyborg body before being sent home to resume his top-secret government duties. Naturally, nobody's sure it's really him, not just another rusky plot to infiltrate America. You know, these Cold War films seem ever more quaint after a few years with an actual traitor and co-conspirator in the White House, and a party that sees no issue with the mountain of evidence on active Russian spying, vote tampering, financial ties, and collusion. What used to make us paranoid and defensive is apparently just fine and dandy so long as it's done by the far right now. So yeah, this film kind of sucks, and you have to wonder just what kind of favors are being fooled to get Gould on hand for a secondary lead in this boring, meandering piece of laid-back Cold War paranoia. I particularly like the ending where it turns out to be the right guy all along, but he just wants to be left alone to work on a farm. Gee, I hope those rural hick types don't mind the commie robot man moving in down the way. Good luck shopping or getting parts repaired. Complete misfire and best forgotten. Oh, I saw this in the theater. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. I hope you some good drugs. <laughs> No, I was still young. So I saw this in the theater. I forgot what what the cold bill was. Sometimes I remember the uh, the double features. It was a strange movie to market. I remember that. And I was like, what is this? What is this? You know, it's, it's like action movies. It's a sci-fi picture. And uh, gosh, there were, around this time period, there were a couple of weird pictures. There was one with Richard Roundtree and Max Seidel, Max von Seidel, uh, about... Some spy in, the, I think it was called Embassy. There was there was another picture with uh, maybe Connery about another embassy. They're, they're making these movies where Cold War, past the Cold War, where there was like some suspected villain that was in cahoots with somebody. They had to find out it was really them. That kind of thing, if this is making sense to any of you people, back in the 70s, they were making a lot of movies like this, especially in the mid-70s, mid-70s primarily. And so there comes this movie where this guy was a scientist, perhaps, and who was uh, in a botched, <laughs> in a botched alleged Soviet kidnapping. It was an accident, <laughs> so he's encased in this metallic body. And so they bring in Elliot Gould, who's like the super spy kind of 
dude who's going to interrogate you in his own particular way to find out if you really know shit and if you really are who you say or that whole thing, that whole spiel. It wound be, it became a more talky film, and I think if you came in expecting something else, you were bound to be disappointed. But one of the few things this film has going for it is the British character actors who appear in this in small parts. I was like, oh, look, there's that guy. Oh, there's that guy. Uh, not entirely successful, but then neither is spies. <laughs> yeah, this is actually another one we both like, though. We we mentioned this in our Sutherland show. Yeah. And it's the comedic indictment of the CIA that features Sutherland as the dopier but more serious one, and Gould as the more happy-go-lucky savvy one of a pair of agents who fuck up so often and so badly that both sides are gunning for them. The bulk of the film centers on their, let's put it in quotes, infiltration of a weatherman-style anarchist activist group run by French yay starlet Zuzu, still looking pretty damn hot but on the road to heavy drug use that would cause her issues straight to the 90s. It's flawed, but pretty fun, and worth a look if you enjoy anti-establishment comedies of the era, no question. But again, we have covered this before, so... Yeah, we covered this in our uh, Donald Sutherland show, and I also saw this... You guys are going to love this because I had I, it came back to me. I saw this in Brighton Beach in the Trump Cinema. <laughs> yes. Uh, Donald Trump's toupee-wearing, sleazy, weird motherfucker-looking father. <laughs> you can quote me on that. The guy looks weird, man, like he was in some fucking death cult. Well, he was. They got a picture um, of him in the 20s marching with a KKK parade in New York City. <laughs> oh, probably even... This probably, he was probably in darkest shit than you and I even can think of, and that says a lot. Um, <laughs> there, there was there was this in Brighton Beach, going to Coney Island Avenue, this area. Oh, you guys love this show for shit like this. <laughs> going to Coney Island Avenue, there was an area called Trump Village. It was like these big three or four or five buildings. And it was near the Bonomo factory. What the hell is that? Remember Good and Plenty, folks? Mm-hmm. Bonomo candy make Good and Plenty. The factory was in Coney Island. <laughs> and they, they had a, had like those big old-fashioned uh, st- uh, steam things coming out. And fucking, they used to make the candy. Good and Plenty does it. Good and, you watch trailer comparisons. Is it mm, good licorice. And plenty. <laughs> yeah, it's licorice, <laughs> candy, and the Bonomo factory is there. Anyway, right by Trump Village. So there's a strip mall, right? And there was a massage parlor. I was way too young. <laughs> and a Chinese place and uh, some supermarket. And there was, in this strip mall, the Trump Cinema. So I saw they would play lots of oddball art movies. And occasionally they would play something cool. But, you know, it was just like a bus ride to go there. Because it was like at the end of Brighton Beach toward Coney Island Avenue. So I saw this there on a double bill. I hope you're sitting down. With the Mad Adventures of Rabbi Jacob, <laughs> and, and which was a French picture, it was—I think it might have been Pierre Richard. It was like this, this thing, you know, It was like they had run through their spy movies, so let's do a spy movie about this crazy guy posing as a rabbi. <laughs> and so it was a part, you know, Brighton Beach, primarily Jewish neighborhood, right? So I'm sure people who went to see The Man Adventures of Rabbi Jacob, which probably rated G for, like, harmlessness, it was kind of cute, fun, you know, mildly sexual innuendo. And playing with it is Spies, which is probably rated M, because Zuzu, yes. although she was, like, flat, had, like, nipples three inches long. Yeah. And she was, like, really hot, this really hot French girl. She so was, like, she was a good girl. Yeah, she was, and she was like, oh, who's that? You know, 
And so, yeah, we didn't talk about this. I didn't talk about this in the Donald Sullivan show because mm. it's a fresh show. And so it spies a uh, nice reunion of Sutherland and Illegal still shows they're like at heart these like two counterculture guys you know they, they go this this movie that takes you know shot all around the world primarily in France these are the least looking spies you would ever think of <laughs> Irvin Kirshner again I think I said the last show he would do Empire Strikes Back produced by Shardoff and Irvin Winkler Irvin Winkler who actually two years later would give Stallone a chance for Rocky you know, that being said, weird movie spies, they actually thought they had a mash on their hands, which um, <laughs> they they did S asterisk, P asterisk, Y asterisk, you know, just, you get the idea. Just like mash. Which is, mm. Yeah, just like mash. You know, like, hey, let's, let's, it's another mash. Not really, but, you know. But the stars of mash. <laughs> the stars of mash. We're going to... It's just like MASH, but it's not. <laughs> I, I I saw it when it came out again. I, it's it's not a terrible movie. I, it, it plays a lot worse nowadays. California Split followed, though. Yeah, we we're getting into some weird territory here. Yeah, you want to take that one? Because I had nothing else. It's another Robert Altman. And, gosh, they teamed up together. George Siegel. Oh, uh, wow. He's done some really interesting work, and then not. But you know, you can't fault every actor. Everybody's got to eat. He started with Elliot's ex-wife <laughs> and the on the pussycat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So California Split is a Robert Altman picture with George Siegel and Elliot Gould as gamblers, and this is before the really brutal James Conn film, The Gambler. Uh, and Prentices in this. Gwen Wells, who was in Nashville, also for Altman. It's a bit nihilistic. Altman can get that way. Yeah. It, it, it get, it's got a very harsh turn in it. These are two buddies. These are two lifelong friends who hang out and they gamble. And then things start taking a bad turn. One, one character hawks everything he has. The other one tries to help him. And they, they try to come up with a scheme. And they start winning more and more money. But the thing is, will they lose everything in their life, including their own self-worth? Interesting of note, Jeff Goldblum, this is the Jewish show. Wow. <laughs> has, has a small role in this. Two years after becoming the brutal rapist in Death Wish, yes, that was Jeff Goldblum. It's, it's a throwaway. It's a weird movie. It's, it's, it's a character piece, really. I mentioned... <sighs> I mentioned that James Conn film a while ago, a minute ago, and it's it's of that that thing starting to do heavy character. You know, let's make these actors work a little harder. And unfortunately for Elliot, he started doing a lot of weird stuff. He cameoed he cameoed as himself in Robert Altman's Nashville, which you said you didn't like, so we don't cover that because there was only a small part. Yeah, it's that film is bizarre anyway because it's really long. And everybody loves to think it's like the best Altman film, but it's basically they go through so many different people's lives and stories in it. It's just like this montage of maybe you know four different films thrown all together. And like, oh, isn't this wonderful? Well, uh, not really. <laughs> so. Did you see Whiffs? No, I did not. I did see Whiffs. It was on cable years ago. TV director Ted Post uh, done a lot of TV. Did a couple of feature films. Uh, if anything major, please forgive me. Elliot, Eddie Albert, Harry Guardino, Jennifer O'Neill, who we name-checked a lot recently. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of those weird brute 
Fabergé films. Brut was this clone that was way popular at, at, a, at a time. Mm-hmm. And Fabergé was one of the off-brands. And even Robert, uh, Roger Moore. Not Robert Moore. Who the hell's that? Roger Moore. <laughs> Robert Morley. <laughs> Him too. Robert Morley. Roger Moore, James Bond, and the Saint, and a couple other characters, was the the Fabergé spokesman mm-hmm. for years. True. And so they decided to go into film production. Why not? Right? Okay. And so they did this movie, which they thought would be another Spies, which really wasn't successful anyway. And they did this Whiffs, which wound up being this bizarre countercultural fuck-up. It was a terrible film, really hard to find nowadays, really, really hard to find a year after it was released, <clears throat> about military private volunteers, uh, biological chemical weapon experiments. So it's up our alley, in a way, but it's played for laughs, sort mm. of. Our cast here was, as I mentioned, uh, oh, Godfrey Cambridge is in this. Richard Massor, decent character actor, best remembered. One of his last pictures was John Carpenter's thing. Howard Hessman yep, from WKRP. WKRP. Anyway, this this was so bad. This is one of the few pictures from that Fabergé brute thing. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that Elliot Gould and Jennifer O'Neill were a thing in this picture. And they were having such a tough time that they actually had to be physically kept apart during filming. I do not know what this means. I may not not want to know what this means, but they were. she was supposed to be the girl in the picture, so it gives you an idea. What went wrong? So, uh, this is another video on demand. Look up the company. Me and Johnny Barris, over to you. Yeah, and I also think you brought up the Fabergé uh, Roger Moore connection. Isn't that why they threw that in the Fabergé eggs into Octopussy? <laughs> yes, they joke. did. Yes, they did. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, me and Johnny Barrows. All right, we discussed this film uh, before a couple times, certainly during our black exploitation show. Oh, I think it was during our Roddy McDowell one. We covered it again. I never liked this fucking movie. It's <laughs> Gould. I like that. I never liked this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Fred Williamson one. Gould is the only bright moment in this least appealing of at least major Fred Williamson pictures. Williamson's an ex-con who keeps getting taken advantage of, not least by the mobsters who take him on as their cleanup man and enforcer. Gould's appearance in this consists of a five-minute bit part where he's like a bum who tap dances and keeps his spirit bright on the soup line. And seriously, that's how low Williamson sinks in this one. He's on the soup line. That's all I'm going to say about this time. We, if you're interested, you can go back and check out the Ronnie McDowell show. We definitely covered it there and as well in the Blacksportation show. Fred Williamson films are a mixed bag. He tends to, very early on, he decided to take control of his own career and make his own movies. And sometimes that works. Like some people say it doesn't, but I actually like Death Journey a lot. And sometimes it's, oh my God. And this is one of those, <laughs> oh my God moment. Well, folks, I actually interviewed Fred Williamson twice. Uh, one for like three hours on the phone, uh, one for one hour live in the audience in front of people. This man is a character. Yeah. And But Fred has told me a couple of times. He says, yo, I didn't have a lot of money. I called him favors. I had friends. Yep. And this is what he did. And, and sometimes he knew, yo, he didn't have a lot of money. He had a picture he wanted to make. And so if you threw Stuart Whitman and Elliot Gould and Roddy McDowell's picture on a poster like he did for me and Johnny Barrows and, and got them to show up for a day or two days, if that. 
that helps sell his picture. Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, Fred is erratic. Yeah. I won't even use the word uneven. I would say erratic. So, I mean, it's it's out there whether we ever do a Fred Williams show. <laughs> Actually, the best thing we could ever do for you and me is to do a Fred Williams show with Fred on Skype live. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. This guy's a character to the point where when we saw him, he was selling Playgirl uh, spreads of himself to sign. You I remember know? that. And he spent the entire time macking on my wife with me there, like, laughing at him. I'm like, what the hell? Are you serious? Well, he does that. He does, yeah, he does he it all the time. That's how he is. He's, He's a like, character. Hi, I'm Fred Williamson. He's got a cigar in his mouth, of course. Yep. He's indoors. It's not, you know, it's not lit. And he, like, he'd be looking at your girl. I'm like, hi, I'm Fred Williamson. And trying Maybe. to show him the pictures and, like, you know, touching yeah. the hand and, you know, looking him in the yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah. He, he does that stroking of the hand thing really well, too, doesn't he? And you're looking at him going, you're stroking my girl's hand. Yeah. He's giving bedroom eyes. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> really? <laughs> this old guy. The thing is, if you went back to your room alone, they'd be fucked up. Yeah. Well. But. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a problem. <laughs> out his blind. <laughs> you tell me he's famous. Just the other just make me laugh. Oh, uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're all right. That's the funniest thing of, in like a month. Of all, <laughs> of all people, too. We met a lot of black exploitation stars and starlets, and they've all been great. Fred Williamson, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking Richard Roundtree and Jim Kelly and Pam Greer. I mean, people that you know. And they're, they're wow, Fred Williamson. <laughs> but the reason why I broached that subject was you can just imagine how a show with Fred, even pre-record. Oh, yeah. Talking to you and me, you know, and we would be very respectful, not like this, this movie's too much. We would think creative ways to say that. I, I am sure it would, it would be like, wow. Come on, I did Third Eye for years. You don't think I had, like, different opinions of some of the stuff that I said? I just, you know, I try to tell the truth, but I always try to oh, yeah, be yeah, soft-pedaling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, butter yeah, them up yeah, a little yeah. bit and then prepare them for the shocker and laugh it through and go for the next one. <laughs> Oh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I did this thing with Dave Hess years ago, and 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 uh, the guy I did the show with found it like last year, and yeah, we tried. We it was a little difficult. You know, not none of all David Hess's stuff was gold. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, did you see Harry and Walter go to New York? Well, actually, this is another one we covered during our Michael Caine show. It's an oddball heist film set at the turn of the century. But unlike The Great Train Robbery, which we talked about during our Connery show, this one's about vaudeville types at the turn of the century with everyone running around dressed like fucking Mary Poppins. Seriously, I've seen the trailer, but that's all I've seen. And I think you discussed it during the Kane show. Yeah, I discussed it during the Kane show. A fun cast, uh, if I could say fun. Diane Keaton, Michael Caine. We discussed it, Michael Caine, like you said, James Caan. Vaudevillians. Okay. So, doesn't come to... Mine quickly is that James Conn and Elliot Gold are struggling pavilions. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, then Michael Caine is your charming. Well, yeah, we get that. You know, think heist guy. Yeah, we get that because Michael Caine is like gold. You know, Michael Caine can do anything. But once you throw in, there's the Woody Allen connection. Diane Keaton, who was like hot at the time. And then Leslie Ann Warren, Burt Young. 
from the Rocky films. Really oddball cast. This picture bombed. <laughs> like, like a huge freaking A-bomb. It did not do well. There were song and dance numbers. I think knowing the grit of the actors involved, people were going in expecting maybe some either. What's the year for this? 76. Uh, 76. Either some particularly counterculture thing or maybe some odd, off-ended black comedy picture. And they got neither. What they got was this, like, throwback to a vaudevillian kind of uh, adventure that just really didn't work. And uh, I think it did no one any help, including anybody who appeared in this. And we're not even talking, like, burlesque sort of vaudeville, you know, the, the Mars Brothers did vaudeville in, like, the 1920s. No, we're talking about, like, 1800s walking around like Mary Poppins, you know, petticoats and, you know, top hats and monocles. Right, and, and you know, <laughs> these guys are on stage doing songs, and they're trying, you know, come on, you know, I want to give them that credit. They're trying. Uh, they, they didn't fucking quit this picture. <laughs> Gives them a lot of credit. And it's a Walter Hill. Walter Hill was known for his black exploitation films, which are usually pretty gritty and stuff like The Warriors. I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a one of its kind kind of thing. Maybe maybe in in years to come, after our deaths, people will reevaluate this movie. <laughs> It was weird. I I may have seen this theatrical on a double bill, or may have seen it in the early days of cable. That I can't tell you the truth. But I I just didn't know what to make of it. I just like wow. When I saw it again for the show, and I didn't know what to make of it, and I said wow. So <laughs> so he did a bridge too far. Yes, bridge too far. Just we talked to this one at length in our Sean Connery show and touched on it again for our Michael Caine one. So this is actually the third time this one's come up. And given just how huge a cast there is, I wouldn't be surprised if it came up again in the future. Long, yes. long, long, and boring Richard Attenborough war film about a field operation in the Netherlands during World War II. It's a lot of talking heads and few in the cast even share a scene, much less get any expository time to develop their characters or what have you. If you're in this one at all, you're either a military historian or you're just in it for the starfucker aspect. You know, James Caan, Connery, Kane, Gould, Dirk Bogart, Lee Volman... Gene Hackman, Anthony Hopkins, Denham Elliott, Ryan O'Neill, Robert Redford, Wolfgang Price, Maximilian Schell, Lawrence Olivia. It's ridiculous how many people were tapped for this. And not one gets a moment worthy of their talents. So There's no Doc Savage or Lewis Paul. I can't stand that. <laughs> be That's right. We're we missing been in there. From <laughs> We should have been in there. Yeah. What the fuck? Oh, they didn't want little kids at that time. <laughs> I, 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 well, how old was I? 17. <laughs> so, so, I saw this in the theater, and you know what? I was, I, you know what brought me in there? Uh, well, I can't even say the trailer, because you would have seen, in those days, you would have seen the trailer with a movie. I think the poster, and maybe, you know, what you read in the papers, like, wow, all these people are in this movie? Mm -hmm. Wow. And I, I remember seeing it in, at a very big theater in Manhattan, and thinking, Wow, it's kind of really long and drawn out. And it didn't really pick up scene to the last half hour. And then most of the actors are gone by that point. Where I think it was Remigan, mm -hmm. the Bridget Remigan section, which was an entirely different film about the Bridget Remigan. And there was. You, you guys could look it up. The Bridge Too Far, the last half hour was that. You know, and, and it's like really interesting. Richard Attenborough was this uh, character actor who was in like World War II movies, you know, from the 40s or 50s and 60s. And then the early 70s, he did 10 Rillington Place, a movie about a serial killer. Shocked the world. And then he started, like, suddenly he got 
power to like really do he was one of the first British directors in the late sixties, early seventies to come out of nowhere after being around forever as a director, come out of nowhere to be given carte blanche. And so he was on and off doing this thing. You know, he 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 directed Academy Award winning movies. You know, uh, I would like to say a passage to India that might be Merchant Ivory. It might actually be him, but he did that kind of stuff. So he got to do a bridge too far, which in 1977 dollars was a lot of money. I can't even quote you the numbers. It was just like, you know, look at look at your cast, Robert Redford. You know, if you did a trailer. You know, in the old days, they used to have TV trailers, so they were shorter. If you had a 30-second trailer, you could have just flashed the name cards for every one of the actors in there and taken up 20 seconds of that. Yeah. Yeah, or their faces. Yeah. It would have been like, what? What? Who's this? i got to see this movie. <laughs> That's probably how they sold it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that was the thing. I, th- I, think, I think probably this is the kind of picture that opening weekend was huge, and then after it just dropped off. Because this, you know, it's, and I'll say this for long movies. We, You and me both go back and forth on long movies, depending on the film, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the kind of picture that had to be either two parts or much longer yeah. for it to work. Now, it was already long at probably two and a half hours to some, but I'm sure they probably cut the hell out of this thing. And that probably hurt. You must have filmed at least four hours worth. Yeah, and that probably hurt the film because you have a story like this. You have all these actors guaranteed they did not work for one day. And 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 I'm sure that once he submitted his cut, they said, what are you, crazy? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we got a two-and-a-half-hour movie at that, and there's probably a three-, four-hour version, which they probably would have been better for – you know, it's not even D-Day, it's the events leading up to, and I think that was the deal. So he's in the middle of this weird slump, if you will, with Harry and Walter and Bridge Too Far, and maybe even me, Jerry Barrows, even though he's just kind of a cameo there, and likable for it. But here's another one. 1977, Capricorn 1. Oh. You know those crackpot conspiracy theories that right-wingers throw around? Everything from vaccines causing autism and a revival of the flat earth thing to this ridiculous assertion that we never actually landed on the moon? Uh, well, this... wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who said we did? <laughs> this patently stupid film <laughs> is based on the latter, transposing the, quote, faked mission to Mars instead. The president can't be bothered to show for the first man rocket to Mars, so he sends the VP who's none other than William Shallert, Nancy Drew's dad, the realtor from Poltergeist, and most importantly, the guy from the Pathmark commercials. Instead of selling canned peas, here he's catty as shit with the head of NASA, using his launch-viewing binoculars to check out some girl's ass and throwing a lot of mutual snark back and forth. Well, they exchange surface pleasantries and shake hands. You'd think it were a wilder, Molière comedy of manners. Things get so catty. Meow. Meantime, the astronauts, Goofy Sam Watterson, a pre-hotel James Brolin, and of all people, a pre-bloody glove O.J. Simpson, who should have broken the fourth wall to tell gullible audiences, if the conspiracy theory don't fit, you must acquit, are spirited away during the final countdown by government agents. Apparently, it's all a big PR wash, because the rocket had faulty parts, shades of the still-to-come challenger disaster, but rather than fix and admit to this, they decided to kidnap the astronauts and fake the whole landing in a studio set while pretending they all died in their turn. Meantime, people start to figure out things aren't kosher, and they start disappearing, with records being altered to show any whistleblowers never existed, or they get canned from their job and have drugs planted on them, and of course they wind up on the run from murderous government types. It's very Hangar 18 meets North by Northwest. Along the way, the cast expands to include the likes of Hal Holbrook, 
Telly Savalas, Brenda Vaccaro, and Bosley from Charlie's Angels himself, David Doyle. But come on. Gould comes into the picture as an intrepid newspaper man who gets tipped off to the whole conspiracy between wasted attempts to hit on the frigid cross-eyed Harridan from hell, Karen Black. It's hardly another long goodbye, much less the more happy-go-lucky thing he had going on in other pictures around his time, like, you know, Busting Mash, Mean Johnny Barrow Spas, but you more or less know the drill. He's his usual mix of down-on-his luck, sardonic, funny, and strangely obnoxious, a character trait that was becoming more pronounced as the 70s wore on. There's a frankly unbelievable undercranked sequence where Gould's car is sabotaged so badly he finds he has no brakes. The car speeds up past 100 miles an hour, and even the ignition pops out of the steering column, but despite not wearing a seatbelt, because nobody did in those days, honestly, he survives a jump off a raised drawbridge that throws his Ford into a river, just barely missing the support column on the opposite side. Guess all that religiosity he's into paid off, huh? Peter Hyams, who previously used Gould in busting and would go on to films like Outland, which we talked on our Sean Connery show, End of Days, which we talked on our Schwarzenegger show, Running Scare with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, and what's probably Van Damme's best film, Time Cop, would pull the conspiracy theory stick one more time with the Star Chamber, and as that list shows, certainly he could deliver an entertaining, even somewhat gripping film. But despite the all-star cast, this one's just kind of silly, like a star fucker take on Alice Jones. Are you done? <laughs> I like this. I, really? I, I, I like this. It's cheesy, but you know, it's funny how I, I, will, I will support you in this. Some people think this is great, and it's not. It's one of those Lou Grade movies that people have been following our show. Oh, I got to do a, a shout-out to Patrick Stanton, guy I met at a couple of conventions who actually listens to our show quite often and says he loves them. Oh, great. So thanks, Patrick, for listening. He actually even name-checks a couple of shows, so I know he's listening. <laughs> so... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so if you've been following our show, you know, we've mentioned Lou Grade's ITC thing and the strange things they were doing in the mid-70s, like with Brass Target, with uh, George uh, Kennedy and a bunch of pictures. And this is one of them. And I like this one. It's it's not great art. It's There's no tension. It doesn't hold together well. Now, you mentioned conspiracy theory. Well, yeah, well, who said we landed on the moon? You believe in the flat Earth too? <laughs> no, I don't believe in the flat Earth. I didn't say I believe we landed on the moon. I didn't say I didn't believe we landed on the moon. It's uh, another conversation. <laughs> but there's very few. Yeah, Hangar 18's another thing. But there's very few films that actually cover this thing. That's the, the problem with the picture is they try, it tries to be adventure, conspiracy, and thriller all at once. It's got the most oddball cast, and you name-checked everybody. But um, it's a fun picture. Uh, a lot of people still really like it, and I, I just don't dislike it as much as you do. A lot of people still really like it, and every one of them is on the Alex Jones website. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, next up comes uh, something called Matilda. I don't know what the hell that is. And then we get into... You don't, you don't remember Matilda? See, this is the thing. When when I was young and living in New York, and when I was 78, and I was going to school, and I was uh, taking the train to school, there were these big posters in the subways for this movie, Matilda, about a boxing kangaroo. Oh, I do remember that. I was always going to ask you, was it a giant rabbit? But there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the class, the cast had Elliot Gould, our subject, Robert Mitchum, and, and <laughs> Harry Guardino, that guy who pops up again, and Lionel Standard. Yeah, man. 
Max, blacklisted Max. Yes, yes. It was about a boxing kangaroo, and and Elliot, I think, was like one of these uh, uh, agents or whatever. It was like a bad idea. <laughs> it compounded upon the then new found interest in Australian films mm-hmm. and Australian productions. I always thought it was some sort of a live-action Disney film because they were doing a lot of them around that time. But yeah, no, no, no. That's what Matilda was. I I think it bombed. <laughs> so. Next up, he does one which is really surprisingly good, and you don't hear that much about it. The Silent Partner. It's a weird Canadian heist-slash-suspense-slash-serial killer film. A few odd tidbits. It was supposedly the first film financed by the Canadian government tax incentive, which had become a source of any number of exploitation and slasher films over the next decade and a half. It also had a rather unexciting soundtrack scored by, of all people, Jazzman Oscar Peterson. Gould is a nebbishy bank teller at a branch actually located in the middle of that huge Toronto mall that's supposedly one of the biggest in the world. He's hot for one of the higher-ups, the boring EJMSF, Susanna York. Those of you who don't know what an EJMSF is, it translates to every Jewish man's second fantasy, i.e. fucking a blonde. See, don't say you never learn anything here. <laughs> this is true. But like most girls in the first half of the film, she won't give him the time of day because he doesn't make any money and has, quote, weird and boring hobbies like collecting exotic tropical fish. Wow, what a freak. Must be something wrong with that guy, huh? Shallow gold-digging bitch. <laughs> anyway, this becomes something of a trend as York, among others, are banging the priggish bank manager despite being married to another guy. Even office goofball John Candy, wearing the tackiest pimp suit in history, manages to score a blonde bimbo, who's also banging the boss, by the way, and get her to marry him. Meantime, a shopping center Santa gets tired of brats whining at him and pissing up his pants, and he pulls a stick up where Gould is the cashier. There's a gunfight in the mall, the guy gets arrested, and Gould slips a major deposit into his own pay envelope. The rest of the film is a twisty battle of wills between the fruity Christopher Plummer, all covered in mascara as the Santa come serial killer. He rapes and nearly kills a teen in a sauna. He's wanted for armed robbery, and he proceeds to do a run of breaking and entering and murders as the film goes on. An increasingly empowered Gould, who just needed something crazy like this to break him out of his weakling corporate oppressed shell. And some of it is actually great. You know, when Plummer keeps breaking into his place, leaving threatening notes and phone calls and killing his pride fish, Gould tricks him, literally turning the tables with the phone calls and doxing stalking bit, takes a panel truck for a joyride, parks in front of Plummer's place, and then calls the cops on him saying he's got a gun. Later, he fucks Plummer's hot Latina girlfriend, Celine Lomez, so well that she's turned sides against the guy, and it just keeps getting darker and weirder as you go along. In the end, Gould pulls one last fast one on Plummer. The baddies are dead, and York joins Gould in stepping town with the money, so it all worked out sort of. Personally, I'd rather see him get away with Lomas, who's much better catch than prim old 40-something York, but eh, whatever. Good film, though. Very good film. Oh, yeah. Great movie. Great movie. Uh, yeah, it's, like, surprising. Like, out of nowhere, Gould is terrific. Christopher Plummer. This is, like, this is like one of those early Christopher Plummer movies. Yo, now he's, like, I don't know. He's sort of, well, he's older than Michael Caine, so... <laughs> I'm presuming, folks, I'm presuming he's, well, he appears older than Michael Kay. He's like our preeminent, illustrious, although people think he's British, but he's not, he's Canadian. Our preeminent, or maybe he is British by birth, but anyway, he's our preeminent theatrical actor. And there's so Does he done still st- wear that much mascara? <laughs> no, probably not. But he's done so much stage and television and stuff, you know, he's the man. And, and hey, anybody you could make a movie with. Let's let's name check Ridley Scott's movie about uh, God. What was that like two years ago with Kevin Spacey? And then there was the whole Kevin Spacey drama. So Ridley Scott decided one month before distributing the film, I'm going to take Kevin Spacey out of the film and get Christopher Plummer and reshoot all those scenes. And he did it. 
Nice. What was that movie? All the all the money in the world was something about about the uh, who is the heir that they kidnapped and they cut his ear off. Very rich and we don't care anyway. But still. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, though, no, I mean, this is the, the the kind of status that Christopher Plummer's achieved. I mean, you know, hell, even when he played a Klingon, we liked it. <laughs> uh, no. This this is like one of the earlier times I can remember Christopher Plummer being in a movie where like who is this guy? He's so sinister, so evil, so black. And yo, know, that Elliot Gould of all people, who was like kind of in a little bit of a slump, like you said, suddenly found something in himself and like did this picture, and it was like, wow, yep. really good. It was like everybody who read it and was working for this director, Daryl Duke. Decided, you know what? I'm gonna give us my all. I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got you got to review a movie like that. It's like because that's your interpretation. It's sort of like they decide I'm gonna give my all. You know, I don't care if it's good or bad. I I, I like this part, and maybe that's why this movie. This is a 1978 film. After all these years, it's still a really good film. It's really good, and it's it's just terrific thriller yeah i was actually really surprised by it. i was i wasn't sure what to expect and i was like whoa this is great i've never heard of this fucking movie mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and i do really like how he's kind of stuck in his dead-end role in life just period and it takes this kind of insanity and it charges him up and makes him basically man up if you will and take control of his own destiny and it works he gets a good ending go rob a bank <laughs> so <laughs> So uh, next up, <laughs> this is another one that I like. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're not advising that you do that as a career path, but hey. It's okay. Go ahead. Go rob a bank. We don't care. We're just two guys on the internet. What do you care? <laughs> <laughs> My mother had this thing where she was going through this religious phase, and she actually got some one of those fucking, I don't know what they were, preachy tapes from Pat Robertson. Uh, and it was hilarious because I found one. I was like, this is insane. And I started copying little bits out of it and putting it on mixtapes that I was giving to people. <laughs> and I remember one of them was, you know, you can have success. He was, he was teaching how to get success. And he's like, well, you can have success at being a bank robber, which means that you are successful at robbing banks, but you haven't been caught yet. But that is not what I would consider a worthwhile goal. <laughs> uh-huh. And then we cut the winner's song. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so there's your moral for the the, uh, the silent partner. So next up, he does what I like a lot, and a lot of people kind of don't think much of, but it's a decent film, Escape to Athena. Really? It's a Greek-British war film set in an Athens POW camp during World War II. There's a lot of complicated business outside the camp relating to the occupation and resistance in a nearby mountain town, and after the prisoners take over the camp and join forces with the resistance, there's a further sub-Where Eagles Dare thing where they raid a monastery turned occupation military encampment and liberate some national treasures in the bargain. It's a two-hour-long film with several fairly distinct movements, but the weird cast makes it really watchable. Check this out. Roger Moore and Telly Savalas as German occupation officers, believe it or not. David Niven, Elliot Gould, Stephanie Powers, Sonny Bono, and Richard Roundtree as the POWs, and Claudio Cardinale as the whorehouse man who bangs Savalas, but also serves as resistance liaison. Gould and Powers are USO entertainers and put on a show to distract the Germans while the resistance invades and sets the POWs free. Bono's an Italian gourmet chef, of course. Roundtree's a stage magician, and Niven's a respected archaeologist, and a lot of this does come into play along the way. It's more of a quiet character piece with comedic interludes and a bombastic war film, which is probably why I always love this one so much. 
I really think this is good stuff from your pal and favorite producer. You just name checked him, Lou Grade. So I'm sure you have a different take. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, George uh, Cosmodos or Cosmetos or whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, he came out of nowhere with the Cassandra Crossing, which uh, I think we talked about. And he also did Rambo First Blood Part 2, mm-hmm. the second uh, Stallone watch, which is really good. And so is Cassandra Crossing. And so, you know, he made this, and, you know, I don't knock this guy's movies. I think he's really interesting as a filmmaker. The thing is, I, I kind of always remember this as the David Niven film, because he had throat cancer, that David Niven couldn't speak anymore. But we always loved his... his Repartee. <laughs> his, yeah, repartee, the way he appeared. And so he was dubbed in this picture, yeah. as he was in a couple other movies. Um, Stephanie Powers is in this. There's a lot of interesting people in this. Siegfried Rush from those Edgar Wallace films, remember? Yep. It's a fun cast. I, I have to say, I watched this a few years ago. I did not get the rewatching for the show. I forgot Elliot was in it, but if you say he was, I believe you. <laughs> he comes in with Stephanie, like I said, they're USO people, and he's part of the... So, yeah, it's, I actually enjoy the hell out of it, and a lot of it is because of the cast, but nonetheless. So then he does a couple strange things that really, I don't think they were bad at all. They certainly made him money. He went up on... There's a lot of variety shows in the 70s, and there was one mm-hmm. that Cher did in 79, which actually, the hilarious title, Cher and Other Fantasies, and he's actually in that in a brief bit. Then he shows up in the Muppet movie. Then he shows up in The Lady Vanishes, which was a not very successful retake of the old Hitchcock favorite. And something called The Last Flight of Noah's Ark and something called Falling in Love Again. So any of those you want to cover? I do. The Lady Vanishes is, believe it or not, everyone hold on to your horses, was the last Hammer film. Really? We're talking last classic Hammer film. Interesting. It was the... Last Hammer film. I always thought it was The Devil's Daughter. No, this is after that. Uh, A lot of people don't discuss this. It was directed by Anthony Page. I know who. And your cast was good. You had Ellie Gould, Sybil Shepard, Angela Lansbury, Herbert Long, Arthur Lowe, Ian Carmichael. If everyone used to watch British TV, Ian Carmichael were really great in a couple of shows there on BBC TV back when it meant something. So this was yet another version of the Hitchcock Mainstay Lady Vanishes, which is done umpteen times and then redone umpteen times. The problem, oh, Jenny Runnaker is in this and, and Ladex Shabelle, of course. The problem with this was Hammer was known for other things. To the Devil Daughter was really not doing great box office for them. And the last two Hammer Dracula films they did did not do great box office either. So what do you do? Let's do a remake of a Hitchcock film. Okay. And this barely got released in the U.S. It did not do well in the U.K. And this wound up being the very last Hammer film for 30 years. They did not make one until they reinvented themselves in 2008. And they only made three films since then. So, yeah, go figure. You know, it's how could you decide? You know what? I'm going to remake a Hitchcock film without Hitchcock. And a film that starred Margaret Rutherford, who was the only real Miss Marple worth paying attention to, without Margaret Rutherford. Like, what the hell? There's, there's no way. It's just one of those things that you cannot do and expect a success. So it was uh, fittingly the last film they did. And it was groundly panned even at the time, I recall. But, you know, obviously the Muppet movie did well. And 
I don't know about this Noah's Ark thing, but I know there's a lot of strange things around that time. We saw something like that. Uh, we saw this yeah. like in Search of Historic Jesus and the Search of Noah's Ark and whatever the hell else. So I assume this is another one of those. That was a big thing at the time because of everybody's into Bigfoot and... The Devil and Max Devlin, which you probably see popping up too, is with uh, Bill Cosby as the devil, of course. Yeah, I'm actually going to touch that uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. Did you watch that? Yes, I've actually got something for it. Okay, go ahead. So here's the weird one for you. 1981, The Devil and Max Devlin. The dawn of the 80s was quite strange. People had apparently come around after a decade of introspection, gurus, mysticism, and cults of all sorts to the Christian symbology they'd left behind. Some speculate they were scared straight, but dozens of films like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen, you hear that a lot from Satanist quarters, but whatever the actual cause, the new decade would flip the same coin into the equally demented but far less appealing warts of conservative Christian cults and prosperity gospel bullshit that would consume a new decade televangelists, phony satanic scares over daycare centers, implanted false memories, backward masking, witch hunts over teen culture and music. All of a sudden, things got really day-glow, juvenile, Hallmark card-like, and really, really safe. But before things really shifted gears like that, there was this period where culture was shifting through the low gears. Right around 78 to 81 or so, you start seeing weirdly metaphysically-minded crossover attempts at bridging the, quote, occult sciences, so prevalent in the 70s, with the new dumbed-down Christian conservatism. The Oh God series with George Burns and John Denver. The Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. And the film we're about to discuss. Oh, and there's also a porno take. I forget the name of it. We covered that on Third Eye Back One from uh, Vinegar Syndrome. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Devil and Max Devlin. Disney was going through something about identity crisis. It was a company that was built off the creativity of Ub Works, the creator of Flip the Frog, whose Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was boulderized after he got ousted into the far less interesting or surreal Mickey Mouse, who, which they became famous for big-budget, well-animated films like Cinderella, Snow White, Fantasia throughout the 50s and 60s, before dropping animation almost entirely to become this live-action children's film concern in the 70s, the Apple Dumpling Gang films, for example. But as the decade wore on, they started tapping the darker concerns from the psychic Kids in Peril Witch Mountain films to the surprisingly grim near horror of Watcher in the Woods and the quite metaphysical, thoughtful, and dark Black Hole, which is one of my all-time favorite films, actually. And right when they got to their all-time darkest, the company realized it was time to pull back somewhat. So what did they do? Hmm... How about a rom-com, for kids presumably, featuring likable anti-establishment comedy film star and unlike the 70s sex symbol, Elliot Gould, as a sleazy slumlord who, like just about everyone nowadays, refuses to bend the rules for anyone. No pets, no repairs, no kids, pay your rent on time or get the boot. I hear a huge sector of the audience right now saying, yeah, and? So, in the course of chasing that, shows what shit has we become, in the course of chasing down a resident who's overdue on the rent, he promptly gets run over by a bus and is shown descending to hell seconds after the opening credits. This is a Disney film, mind you. Creepy Reggie Nalder films Lot and porn films Blue Ice and Dracula Sucks shows up as a hard-to-understand Satan, and they prove they're decades ahead of the rest of us in casting Bill Cosby as a sinister recruitment officer who pushes Gould to corrupt a bunch of kids with, quote, innocent souls into selling them in exchange for his own. They knew he was a predator in 1981, people. Uh, things really get weird from here. With an awful pair of Marvin Hamlish songs, one of which you get to hear about 45 times during the course of the film, a rather homely songstress who coughs her way through studio time without the satanic zap, a dork who wants to win at motocross, and that rotten little shit Adam Rich made is enough, who if you don't cringe at the very mention of his name, you just weren't around for the 70s, who's trying to get his grumpy single mother, toothy Susan Anspach, laid. Which is where the supposed romance comes in. Oh, and Enos from the Dukes of Hazard shows up for a minute. Seriously? This is a Disney film? What the fuck were they thinking? 
<laughs> I don't know what to think of this thing. I just see it on cable, and you know what? I, uh, as a bit of information, this apparently this was the movie that convinced Disney to create offshoots like Touchstone Pictures and Hollywood Pictures, later to become Miramax Pictures. Is there anything harsh in this movie? No, but Disney was like, "What are we doing?" You know, even. Even the Buena Vista, short-lived Buena Vista films, if you remember those, mm-hmm. there's nothing like this. They, you know, they didn't know what they had, what they were making, and what they were distributing until they saw it, and probably in the theater because these are the coked-up Disney days. Really strange, oddball thing. Oh, I totally believe everybody knew what Bill Cosby was doing back then, and that's the only reason why Bill Cosby's behind bars now. That people just finally said, "Enough, Bill, you got." go going down. So, yeah. but it's a strange movie. Elliot looks good in it. I mean, the guy is aging very well. You know, we started this show with him in the '60s mm-hmm. and countercultural uh, sexual mores films and relationship movies. And here is 1981, and he's still starring in a film. So it's it's a fun little thing uh, as far as that goes. <laughs> um, but he does do some bizarre pictures. He, he appears in German counterculture picture in 1983 called Tramps. And there's that over the Brooklyn Bridge thing I told you about before. Yeah, Menachem Golan, yes, of canon fame. Margot Hemingway sits. He's a Burt Young. Shelley Winters, I believe, played, played his mom in this. It's Jewish guy. His father had died. They run a lunch net in Brooklyn. Wow, sounds like real life. He's looking to... Get out of, you know, make it big. He's, you know, he's getting older. And the only thing I can really remember about this canon film, which was shot in Brooklyn, hey, name check Brooklyn, was that, like, he, he goes on a date with Carol Kane, of all people, um, who was, I don't know, what would you call it, nerdy, nervous? She, she was a character actress. She died young of cancer. She was, I think, in maybe one of the early When a Stranger Calls movies. Uh, she was quite good. She did other things. She did, like, kind of, she was very good at playing roles that kind of belied her appearance. And in this movie, she, you know, he goes, Elliot goes on a date with this girl, plays, you know, she's Carol Kane, and she plays this snappish, nerdy looking schoolmarm type. It's a first date, and she comes out of the, uh, out of the bathroom wearing a, uh, a Dom suit <laughs> and rubber and a whip. <laughs> and it was just, it was like, the scene went from there, went really good. It was kind of hot, too. I was like, he didn't know what to do with it. Like, I wondered at the time when I saw it, it's like, I wonder if they told him. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they told him that Carol was going to come out like that. No, I'd love to hear a commentary on that. Uh, it, it totally bombed because, you know, it just was not. This is like when, when, when Golan and the Globus were trying to do something with their films above and beyond the unusual, but very strange. And he, he showed up in a naked face. Yeah, that's the next that? one I was going to hit. Yep. So 1984 we're at now. And Naked Face, an oddball but somewhat Hitchcockian thriller with a strangely miscast Roger Moore as a shrink who gets implicated in a murder. It turns out that it has to do with a monster who is paranoid about his wife blabbing secrets, and Gould is not the good cop he seems to be. Interesting cast includes Rod Steiger as one of the cops, Art Carney as the quirky old P.I. that Moore hires, and Forever Night's amusing sidekick, Detective Stanky John Capellos, as one of the mobsters. Very similar but inferior to Jonathan Demme's even more Hitchcockian last embrace with Roy Schotter and Christopher Walken, 
even so, it's quite watchable. Yeah, it's a very strange movie in a way. Uh, Brian Forbes had done some really interesting films. Oddball cast, especially for canon, especially at this late period. Moore acquits himself well. I think I think Gould does, and actually everybody, even Rod Steiger, dialing it down a bit. Yes, you heard you heard me right, dialing it down a bit. <laughs> And then strangely cast Art Carney, also moving in between craziness and not so much. And Archer, who had a career trajectory that was doing quite well at this point, is also in this. And uh, John Capellos, yes, Forever Night, a show I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should talk about that at one time. I'm actually rewatching uh, them just now as we speak. <laughs> are you? Because yes. that's on my, it's on my plate to do that. Yep. In the next few months. <laughs> That's how busy my life is. <laughs> um, I really, I thought the Naked Fist was okay. I really felt it had the, 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 uh, had the opportunity to be a much better film, but it wasn't. Yeah. Put it at that. It's borderline. It's definitely watchable. It's definitely Hitchcockian. It's just. It's not terrible. Yeah, it's no. not as strong as Last Embrace, which was even more so. Right. True. And also the same time period, basically. So he does a lot of strange stuff after this. Uh, Muppets Take Manhattan. Okay, it's a sequel. He's on ER for a couple episodes. He does things like A Drug-Free Kid's A Parent's Guide, Lethal Obsession, you know, weird, like, junk films like that. And then all of a sudden he pops up in, talk about junk films, something called Night Visitor, those of you who know your really bad pseudo-satanic pseudo-slashers. Thoroughly unpleasant pseudo-slasher that brings Satanism into the picture, but never feels in the least occultic, atmospheric, or anything but grotty and unwatchable. People love it for some reason, though. Michael J. Pollard gets way too much screen time for anyone's good, and Gould and Richard Roundtree are cops investigating the murder of Gene Simmons' long-suffering wife and perennial Skinamax softcore starlet Shannon Tweed. But anything we say could only make this piece of shit sound far more exciting and good than it actually is. I don't generally sell off older horror films, I couldn't get this one out of the house fast enough, so that should say something. Avoid it at all costs. How <laughs> you have anything to say on that one? Yeah, I, I saw this, but I don't really recall it too much, so I, I can't really yeah, so, comment that. Yeah. Again, more like TV stuff, like Murder, She Wrote, he pops up, he pops up in uh, Bugsy. Also, also, he was also doing a lot of cameos as Elliot Gould. Yes. Uh, which I find really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So he's on some TV stuff, you know, Beyond Justice, Deadly Nightmares, Saturday Night Live, he popped up once or twice. And then Wet and Wild Summer. He's 92 now. He's pretty much taken anything at this point, showing up in an Aussie teen sex comedy of the era about lifeguards. You can tell the Baywatch phenomenon was in full swing. I don't remember this one, but how many were all that memorable in the first place? I am positive that I had seen it either on USA Up All Night or Cinemax back in the day. Mm-hmm. The title rings a bell, and between my father, my drummer, and, yeah, myself, I don't think many of these got aired on TV and paid cable that between the three of us we missed. It was always stupid but fun. And, again, these sort of films harken back to better, less uptight days in American, if not global culture. Were they great cinema for the ages? <laughs> but a harmless bit of nonsense to have on the background while you're doing something else. Sure, sure. Let's see what else he's done. He's on L.A. Law again, uh, Lois and Clark, Naked Gun 33 and a third, The Final Insult, which I think was the third one. He's on Friends. He got a recurring role as the father of two of the characters. I didn't even know any of them were related. I always despised the show with a vengeance. Probably the start of millennial yuppie culture. It was all about these losers at life and career who hunker together with weird pals in the local coffee shop. Cheers for the younger crowd, I guess. I don't know. I can't stand that fucking show. And then way on later, we're talking about pushing all the way to 2001, he starts showing up in these Oceans films. Oceans 11, yes. yeah. Oceans 13... 
Ocean's 8, which is actually the newest one, which I had seen fairly recently. That was the one with Aquafina in it. Sandra Bullock did it with the... They want to say all-female cast. There was other people in it as well, obviously, but yeah, it, it wasn't bad, and these films but, are much loved. Yeah, uh, the, the the Ocean's films, uh, well, what the first time he shows up, Ocean's 11, 2000, 2000 2001, yeah, all-star cast, we, you know, back in Back then, it's it's been a while since we had a film that would do you know present us with like every major male hunk model. You know, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia, who doesn't even look human anymore. <laughs> Julia Roberts, lots of people. And lo and behold, uh, yeah, we had I think maybe uh, Carl Reiner was in that. Um, we had some token Asian guy. I don't know who the hell he was. I forgot who it was, but. <laughs> It wasn't somebody cool, which is weird. Like, they had the opportunity, you know, but anyway, that's another story. So, anyway, Ellie Gould shows up in this, and he, he appears in a number of the sequels as <laughs> Reuben, <laughs> you know, your typical Jewish kind of dealer, you know, dealer maker, you know, and, and, you know, it's, like, nice to see him in this, visibly older, visibly hairier. It's like, Ellie's like, take it easier in life. Okay, we grabbed it. We got that. It's nice stuff because now he's he's older, but he's also gigging on riffing on this shtick thing now. He's becoming like I guess maybe what he presumes his great grandfather would have been. Did you get that with these Ocean's movies? That's what I got. I guess. I, yeah, he's definitely being uh, a very Jewish stereotype. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, he's be- yeah, but he's I think he's riffing on becoming a stereotype. I I think he's still the same Elliot Gould we always knew. Yeah, now, I'm not like, seeing it as him. I'm seeing it as the role he's playing here. So yeah, right, the role he's playing, right? But he's riffing on that. Yeah, but he does it so easy, and so uh, so uh, uh, without without exerting himself that this worked into a thing for him. He was on Ray Donovan, this cable thing, for like five years, playing a similar role, you know, to to uh, the lead in that, which was what is this by Elliot Golden, Jewish actors, Leave Schreiber. <laughs> Well, like, hang out with your boys, right? Okay, so uh, you know Ray Donovan was that very, uh, that very uh, well-known show about <laughs> Irish American played both Lee Schreiber yeah. <laughs> in the South Bronx. He works for a law firm. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I watched a couple of those, and but I noticed Elliot was in them. His father was played by John Voight, you know, like extreme right-wing motherfucker. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Father of Angelina Jolie. Anyway, nice to see, though, that Elliot is back now with Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas, of all people, in a semi-reoccurring role on this Kaminsky method. Did you see that? I know it exists. I have not seen the show. It's a a weird show. I saw it on Netflix. And it's, it's sort of like a Hollywood press agent, his best friend, and they complain about things. And they... One's an older womanizer, and one is just this guy telling him what life should be like if you were stupid and what <laughs> life should be like if you were smart. It's very funny. It's very dark. And, and Gould has showed up in a few of these, so that's that's nice to see. Yeah. But uh, that pretty much brings us up to modern day. Like I said, he was in the Ocean's 8 thing, which was nice that even though they rehauled the uh, – I don't want to call it a series, it's only two or three films, but you know, when they overhauled the whole thing, they still kept some kind of ties to the George Clooney iteration. You know, and that's that was last year, so he's still working, the guy. God bless him. 
you kind of get the idea of who he was just from the films we discussed. A lot of these things, you, know, you might have walked in thinking, well, you know, like he was a comedian or whatever. You know, I know he's like very serious about his orthodox faith and everything. And yet here he is in films like Spies and Little Murder. Little Murder. I mean, oh, yeah. Little Murder is a cult film waiting to be rediscovered. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these are strange films, and it says a lot about who he was. In some ways, he was almost as counterculture, or was in those same roles, as uh, Donald Sutherland, who came off yes. a little bit more lean towards the respectable, especially as he went later in his career, and he just became mm. like, oh, look, here's you know, respected actor, Donald Sutherland, as opposed to, here's this you know, counterculture hippie smoking pot and you know, spousing whatever the hell. Gould kind of stayed there, which is interesting. I mean, yes, he's become an elder statesman. Basically, back to what we said in the beginning. The guy mm. is an interesting type that falls between a lot of cracks that you can make parallels. Okay, this is a little bit Donald Sutherland-esque. This is a little bit Alan Arkin-esque. This is a little mm. bit Woody Allen-esque. This is a little bit, you know, back and forth. And yet, somehow in the middle of all this, a fairly straight line comes like Gould, and he's tapping all of these offshoots just as successfully as any of the others. And even surviving weird, you know, flops, if you will, like the devil and Max Devlin along the way. And and a, and a marriage to Barbara Streisand. Oh, yes. God, yeah, the fact that he got through that one. Cause, you nine know, years, nine years, I think. Yeah. People, you know, especially the gay community, loves Babs, and I, I get it. She's a great singer and all this. She's a force of nature, if you will, as a personality. But mm. that's also part of the problem. She is, like Cher, notorious for being very demanding on her men in terms of not just, you know, who they are and, you know, keeping up with her, but in terms of, you got to spoil me. You know, she yeah, knows that she's hot shit. Yeah, she yeah. knows she's hot shit, and that's it. Whether you like her or not, that's how she sees the world. So the fact that he kept up with her for that long says a lot about his uh, fortitude and stamina. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh... Anything else you want to say to close out? Or? I don't know. I enjoyed doing this uh, Elliot Gould show. A lot of fun. Yeah. I hope we, we hope you enjoy it. And our next show is... Well, that's the question. We had talked about a couple of things. So do you want to do... Uh, recently, you said Al Pacino. We also had Charlie Bronson in the wings. I believe mm. we were talking about John Agar, which is a real uh, dark horse. Oh, Van Damme. Van Damme. Yeah, we yeah. Had Van Damme. I would say if we do... Because... <laughs> Well, all those guys have a long career. Yeah. But which one speaks to you right now? Which one sounds juicy? Mm, honestly, it would either be between Pacino and Bronson for me right now. Let's do Bronson. All right, so next time around, we were going to do Chuck Bronson. Yeah. Back to our old Canon show again. More Canon stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Mr. Elliot Gould. Next time around, we will be talking Charlie Bronson. If you would like to contact us here, comment, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician you'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1 or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1, or you can hit our downloadable site directly at thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. And, of course, we're on iTunes, itunes.apple.com, and you will look for Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're very particular, it's ID 5534-02044. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Anything else you want to say before we close out? Or? Oh, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the Elliot Gould Show. Uh, besides some of the big names we just mentioned that were coming up, uh, we're going we're gonna to delve deep into these, deeper again into these uh, character actor things. They're a lot of fun, and 
some of these characters were leading characters as well. You know, people start, they go bounce back and forth, you know, the longevity of their careers. They're a lot of fun. It's also a lot of fun revisiting them. Yeah, and besides that, what I like about it is different is in the beginning we were doing all genres and fields and whatever, and that's great. But here you've got people moving back and forth between several of those. So even though we're revisiting, we're going deeper in and uh, hitting on a lot of stuff all at once, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah. All right, so that's basically it. We're going to have that great outro that we hinted at early on about <laughs> our uh, experience in corporate men's uh, room facilities. Yes. <laughs> that would be great. Yes. And uh, we will see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>
and me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We'll try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. mom with piles of laundry and a motivation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today and my journey is far from finished, but I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side, and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons than thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage and Lois Hall, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-sweet derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. What long piss break? <laughs> the last show. That was like weeks ago, you remember this shit? Wow. We just listened to it. <laughs> oh. I thought you edited it out. Some of it, but... I leave the jokes in. <laughs> oh, you're crazy. So what's up? Uh, <laughs> I I'm always tired lately. I don't know. Because I have to be at the job around 7. Right. So I'm getting up at, don't tell anybody, like 4 or something. Jeez. Or 4-ish. Because I have to have my coffee, feed the cat, wake up. It takes about an hour before you know it. you got to shave, shower, no shit. i got to get out of the house. And... I don't know. The, the humidity's been really high, man. Uh-huh. In the New York area, for those who are not listening, if we keep this part, you know, so just like commuting is like, wow. You know, to take a breath, you have to take a deep breath. And then when you, once you hit AC, I know people 
there are people out there who actually abhor AC, mm. and I get that. You know, it's you know health issues. But I don't know. For me, last couple of years, the the New York metro area, which encompasses I well, what do we say, Connecticut? Tri-state area. Yeah, tri-state area. It's like the humidity has been really bad, and it hasn't. It's been in the low to mid-80s, and we're hitting July, so it's going to rise. But the humidity has been a little rough, and we've been getting rain like Noah's fucking ark. Yep. And it's great because even if you go out at night, and it's not that warm out. You figure maybe it's low 70s, high 60s, and still you can cut the fucking air with a knife. It's like breathing bread. Yeah, I I've been getting home and I, you know I felt bad. I walk in the house to my you know my my dear elder cat and I'm like okay I better put these ACs on now <laughs> because yeah I can feel it you know and I hate to say this but going into the workplace and this this shows you how early I get into my workplace it's dark I the elevator comes off of my building and it's dark so. Once I scan myself in, talk about high security, and go in, I have to hit the light switch to turn the power on. This kind of high-tech building, if you go to the men's room, the lights come on, right? But if I don't hit that switch, I'm pissing on the floor. (laughs) Whee! How did did I discover this one time? The first time I got in that early, and I'm like, Oh, shit. You know, I go into the men's room, and the activated light doesn't come on. I'm like, okay, I better put this uh, garbage disposal can jackknifed against the door so there's some light from the emergency lights in the hallway so I'm not peeing all over the place. (laughs) Uh, And hopefully nobody comes in behind me. Um, So, yeah, but now I know where the emergency lights were. Yeah, that's how early I get in, and, and it's like... So it's nice to like breathe in artificial air. It's like, okay, it's such a rough breathe. It sounds like my grammar school because we had – that place was something else. I wrote a book about it. But it's unbelievable because they used to go and rip the doors off all the stalls. So if anybody was actually desperate enough, you'd see them in there doing their business. And the urinals, these kids are like, I don't know what the hell the deal was, but they love not only flooding them, but then they would stand like way the hell in the back and just start pissing. So the whole, when you walked around the corner into the men's room area, it was just urine all over the floor. <laughs> so. Well, that's funny because you, okay, so I, I work for an unnamed law firm. So <laughs> yeah, you could keep this in, actually. So it got so bad. You would go into the men's room and just piss all over the fucking floor and it starts to stink. So I don't know who amongst some of my cool friends who were I work with came up with the idea. So now they put up a sign and they laminated it on the fucking wall for those people who are five feet and taller. <laughs> <laughs> Fellow blankers, we the men of the 25th floor don't, I'm trying to remember this you know, from memory, don't really need to be saying this, but we must. Please stop pissing all over the floor. <laughs> We stop. We we hate to come in here, smell your piss, see it all over the floor in the seat. Uh, and there might be something from you know you you should be an adult, or you hope you're an adult. <laughs> and if you have to piss all over the floor, please fucking clean it up. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious. That was the worst part because you couldn't even be a civilized person and walk up to the urinal without walking through this like two inches worth of piss. <laughs> oh no, I go in there sometimes yeah. like fuck, this is sick, man. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> They have, yeah, and they have they have like uh, two unisex. They call them private bathrooms. 
So the chicks use, you know, you know, you go in there, they got all these fucking firecrackers in the plastic. You know what that's for. <laughs> I used to call them firecrackers years ago. You know, the girls put them up there. Hey, look like a big firecracker. Bang. <laughs> uh, they're, 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 guys, you know what those are. What so they anyway, the UK Christmas crackers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm glad they provide them. <laughs> And they're they're relatively clean because the ladies tell me, oh, you should go into the women's bathroom. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> but so these private bathrooms are, are unisex, and uh, they're they're for the most part. I like using those because they're pretty clean. But you know, I went in the other day, like because you know they're always pretty clean. You know, take a leak, whatever. You know, groom yourself. And then <laughs> the other day, like, fuck, who was it here? It was like somebody fucking took a bath in the sink, and they're like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, you know, one day, one day, you should keep this in because it's fucking funny. One day, I went into the bathroom, let's say about uh, 9.30, 10 o'clock. I go in the bathroom, take a leak. Like, you guys really want to know that. And so, well, what else is he going to the bathroom for? It's too early to, like, anything else. So I go into the bathroom, and it like somebody must have scissored his pubes. I go to take a leak. I left the toilet seat, right? You do this first because you're a real man. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? It's like somebody must have been, like, really hairy. He was going to, like, go to a massage parlor for, like, piece of chick. He decided today was, like, not a good day to have hairy pubes. I don't think it was a chick, but you never know. Look like guy's pubes. The whole fucking toilet. And he didn't flush it. It's full of fucking pubes. I'm like, uh, what the hell? This is this is what goes on in big law, people. <laughs> well, I used to work with a bunch of Indian guys, and I, you knew this because they don't believe in flushing the toilets. <laughs> oh, really? Like, oh, my God. I can't think how many times I walked in, well, oh, and walk right back out. <laughs> oh, I did that the other day, and, you know, it was bad because... <laughs> It was the men's room. It's been kept clean. The signage is still there that I noted. Uh, it was. It's, it's been pretty much clean-ish. <laughs> so <laughs> I went the other day, and there's two stalls. We got like fuck a hundred people on my floor. Can you believe this shit? <laughs> two stalls and two urinals, and one's for somebody who's like Billy Barty size. <laughs> and you know I'm six foot three, so you know. <laughs> And there was some guy at that one, so I'm like, okay, uh, the Billy Barty size one, I don't know, I feel like a pistol. <laughs> so somebody was in the other stall, I assume, doing whatever. <laughs> so, you know what's funny? Why do you guys bring cell phones to, to the bathroom? Oh, isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you can hear the messaging, because, like, you know, you're taking a leak, psh, and next door. Bing, bing, bing. And you're like, bing. Who are you fucking texting? <laughs> anyway, uh, I like when they're so, actually on the phone. You hear the whole conversation. Like, what yeah, the I, I hear that through the door, so I don't go. So anyway, <laughs> so the other day I go in this toilet, and I'm like, oh, it's messy. I'm like, damn, I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna use this, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't want to clean up somebody's mess. So I came back out, and then and then a guy I knew said, oh, you're done. I said, no, I didn't use it. But I thought he probably thought, ah, oh, yeah, likely story. <laughs> And he went in there, like, he had a toilet paper coming all over the toilet seat. Like, oh, I didn't use it, man, really. <laughs> it's great. We get to the point where not only everybody else, I would imagine, 
But I kept complaining to the, the janitorial staff, like, yo, I know it's not you guys, but this area is disgusting. you got to do something about this. So, yeah, they started sending people in, like, several times a day at that point. But they mm. also put up these placards, like, you know, laminated placards that look like they're official whatever. It's like, you know, you have your, uh, your name by your desk or your cubicle or whatever. They said, like, this whole big speech about, you know, please be considerate. And oh, you got that, too? Yeah, Family yeah, hygiene sure. products yeah. and whatever the hell else. Don't throw this down the toilet. Clean up. And uh, big words. Please clean up after you leave and flush the toilet. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. With the, the, the private bathrooms. Major corporate America, folks. This is <laughs> Please press the silver button if it doesn't flush automatically. What Whoa. is this saying? I mean, I understand. Okay, the grammar school that was years ago. Their kids, whatever the hell else. What the fuck is going on when you've got adults that are, you know, who knows, in their 50s and their 60s and whatever the hell else, and they've got to be told like children, you got to clean up after yourself? <laughs> hey, well, uh, with that being said, I understand when people have issues. Well, that's and, a know, different story. People older than us, or, you know, they can't make it, and they got... <laughs> what, was, what was that movie with Jim Carrey right right before he crashed and burned? Me, myself, and Irene, while he's pissing all over the stuff. <laughs> Irene! Why does it feel like I'm peeing after we had sex all night long? And she goes, because he played a schizo guy. And and I think of that. Yeah, maybe some people just have issues, and I understand <laughs> that. But, dude, don't leave after you've done that, you know? <laughs> At least yeah. clean it up. Oh, and you're yeah, right about but... people taking a shower in there, too, because you would hear sometimes you want to get the one nice bathroom. It was always the one that locked. Yeah. And you hear people there, you know, 10 minutes and on and off every couple of 10-second intervals. And you go, then stop. What are you doing? Shaving your armpits in there? What the? Well, yeah, and you go in and, what's, and the what's floor is covered in wetness. And... Like scissoring his pubes. That's weird. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he went to the, like the, one of the financial district massage places. Like, well, honey, your manscape's so nice. Come, come to, come to Soe. <laughs> I don't know. Not that I know if any of that exists, mind you, but I'm just saying, <laughs> architecture. <laughs> the classy conversations you get to be part of, people. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, so it's been really humid. That's how we started. And, uh, it's it's tough. But it's going to get hotter because it's summer. Yep. <laughs> Although the way things are going now, you know, that global warming, man-made climate change doesn't exist. <laughs> We're probably going to have more Decembers that are 90 degrees. Strangely, I don't know if you noticed that, they're really hot late in the year. Yeah. And then it gets freezing cold, like August. I'm like, what? This is supposed to be the hottest month of the year, and it's like, you know, 55. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> well, I don't know about you. You know how you could tell humidity is high? It's like, you know, when I take a shower, so, you know, I'm leaving the house by 6 o'clock in the morning, and I got my towel all back on the rack. I come home, it's still damp. That's how you test humidity, you know, and it's in the bathroom, you know? I'm like, damn. <laughs> we actually had to put, like, those, not red damp, but those things where you hang it there from the rods. Yeah. And that's in there all the time, and now it's livable, because that used to happen. We come in, and it was like... Man, this towel's still wet, and then they start to stink after a day. You gotta keep replacing yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Like, jeez. I thought it was me, and then people. Oh, you're right. Yeah, give me another fucking towel. <laughs> <laughs> I just buy some. You know? I was like, oh my god. I think the world is hip to New York weather. Yeah. I went to uh, what was it, TJ Maxx uh, a couple of months ago, and I said, non-mildew towels. So what the hell is that? Maybe I should buy some. <laughs> 
Okay, let's test this and we'll get rocking. All right. <laughs>